0: Anthony Appia. Welcome to this podcast. I'm very glad to be with you. <laughs> um, and welcome to Sweden. You're in Sweden now to, to present your new book. It's in Swedish called Identitetsillusionen with the subtitle Lögnerna som binder oss samman. And um, actually our subtitle is your main title in, in English. The Lies That Bind, it's called in English. First of all, tell us a little bit what, what made you write this? Why did you think that this book was needed in these times?
1: Um, well, I've been thinking about identity for a very long time. Yeah. In most of my academic life, I've had been writing things initially mostly about race, but more generally uh, for at least 20 years. Um, I think we are in a time of great identity anxieties of various sorts, um, the, the the rise of populism. And yeah. that's not just a uh, North Atlantic thing. There's populism in India. There's
0: yeah. in Hungary
1: and in, uh, in Italy, in uh, perhaps in Sweden to some extent. Yes, so it the, is. the right-wing party in Sweden is essentially a populist party. Yeah. Obviously, uh, populism is part of the story of Donald Trump. So um, th- that's a, a big phenomenon. And there, there of course, the the form of identity that is being played with is the national identity, the sense that we, the populist um, Americans or the populist Swedes or the populist Hungarians, we are the real Americans, we are the real Swedes, we are the real Hungarians. The others, even if they've got Swedish passports, they're not really properly Swedish. And that sense that the nation has to be held together by a very tightly defined notion of what it is to be a citizen what Mm. it is to be a proper citizen that's a thing that's happening everywhere so it's an interesting thing to think about and you know i'm a philosopher we think about things Mm. sometimes very abstractly
0: Mm.
1: things like that are going on with other forms of identity we've seen huge moves in the domain of identity as it comes to gender uh, over the course of my lifetime. Mm. And very interestingly, in recent years, not just about men and women, but about trans issues and and um, people who were who assigned one, uh, one gender at birth but discover um, sometimes quite young that that doesn't seem right to them. Um, and I guess the thing that strikes me as interesting across the board is the thought that you could say in each case that there is something ethically general to be said, which is that we need to reshape these identities so that they fit more people more adequately. What the populists want to do is to define American identity in a way that doesn't suit Mm -hmm. lots of Americans what traditional-minded people want to do with gender is to insist on old ways of thinking about gender that just make life very difficult for trans people in their just in the public world just in terms of where they can go to the bathroom and stuff like that yeah and how they will be treated and uh on the on on the buses and and in the public sphere Mm -hmm. so um and of course the biggest change from this point of view as i said in my lifetime has been In in all the countries, you know, I grew up in in Ghana, I was born in England, I went to college in England, I live in the United States. In all of these places, there have been huge changes in the way, uh, the situation of women and men in relation to one another, and an enormous opening up of the public world further to women. Um, Now, it happens that in the three places I grew up, women were by no means um, hemmed in, to the extent that they they have been historically in some places, when I was a child, my uh, you know my my grandmother, my so she, who was born in the nineteenth century, um, my grandmother was a, a you know a powerful figure in the world. Mm. And, and after my grandfather died, she went on being a figure in the world. Yeah, uh, my um, great uncle's uh, my great uncle, who was a king in Ghana, had had a queen mother who was undoubtedly the second most important person in the world that I knew. And uh-huh. She, uh-huh. she was enormously powerful. She wasn't as powerful as the king, but she was a great deal more powerful than almost all the men you were ever
0: going to meet. So in what sense was she powerful? I mean, perceived powerful by the society. By, by the society. Yeah.
1: And um, she could, she within the realm of the things that she was supposed to be able to make decisions about, she if you got her, you won. Mm -hmm. Uh, now by the time I was growing up this kingdom was in the middle of a democratic republic and so uh, Uh the the realm of things that these people were supposed to influence was not everything Hmm. but it remained um, the case that uh, obviously if you have that kind of traditional authority it it has an impact on democratic politics Just, just knowing what, if the king lets it be known whose side he's on People, yeah. Some people will do, will vote for somebody just because of that.
0: Yeah, yeah I understand. How, how, I mean, how was it as a young boy for you to see how people related to the king and queen? Because it could be a bit weird, well, I, it, I think.
1: It, I mean, it is weird. Uh, <laughs> on the other hand, if you start seeing something when you're very young... Mm. It becomes natural. It just seems natural. So we used to go and see the old king, the, the one who was king when I was a child until my teens... Um very often after church on Sundays my mother and I and my sisters would just we'd just get in the car and go to the palace and they'd tell him they tell him that we'd come and he would we they would put us to sit somewhere and he would appear and yeah. talk to us for a bit. Uh obviously mostly talking to my mother because yeah. because we were children. But but he we he would you know he he liked children so he would sort of talk to us a bit. Yeah. And um I don't know I felt I felt his charisma i felt mm. a little bit that there was something going on that i didn't quite understand about how it just the the, the sense that this man just radiated um, authority mm. um but i wasn't scared of him mm-hmm. uh and and i it, i had i had i was quite old before i realized that not everybody could do that not everybody could just call up and say hey i'm coming to have <laughs> <laughs> drinks with the with the king. Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah, um, yeah. yeah. So, so his, so what I what I what I gleaned from hanging around him was this astonishing, um, almost physical sense of
0: being in the presence of someone who's used to power, mm. used to
1: exercising authority. Was
0: he also a king that could administer punishments?
1: um not uh he couldn't lock people up and he couldn't have people killed or beaten mm-hmm. which his ancestors did okay he he was the decision maker he was a substantial decision maker in the domain of property mm-hmm. so it could be make a very big difference to how rich you were whether he decided with you or not mm-hmm. i mean but he was applying Law and custom, he wasn't allowed just to make it up any way he yeah. liked. Yeah, mm-hmm. But still, he was very influential in that way. But, but he was, um, in the early 60s in particular, he, he, he sort of let it be known that he disapproved of various things that the president was doing. And that was bad for the president because it reduced his support in this part of the country. So mm-hmm. he had that kind of influence
0: mm. as well. S- some indirect influence yeah. in a way. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, he know.
1: officially, of course didn't want to be mm. known to that. But there were people around him who
0: did, mm. uh, who got involved in politics and, and he didn't stop them. <laughs> mm, yeah, I see what you mean. Uh, so how, how, for how many years did you live in Ghana before you moved to England?
1: Well, it's a bit hard to say because, uh, so I was born in London, my father was still a student, yeah. went to Ghana when I was about one and a bit. Uh, that That was my home then. And, you know, if you asked me where my home was until I went to university, I would have said, I would have told you, there. In Ghana. In Ghana. Mm. But um, because we got involved in politics, uh, well, my father got involved in politics, and because the early independence politics of Ghana was quite tense, um, my father ended up as a political prisoner in 1962. Uh-huh. And I was very ill at the time, and the Queen of England came to visit, and I was in hospital with the president and the Duke of Edinburgh, and they shook my hand. Well, actually, the president didn't shake my hand. I remember thinking, he's not shaking my hand. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Because he knew who I was, because he knew my father very well. Um, And as they're going away, the Duke of Edinburgh turns around and says to me, give my regards to your mother. So now the president realizes that the, the foreign head of state who he's walking with knows that she just shook hands with the son of a political prisoner. Duke of Edinburgh likes to do things like that. He likes to yeah. cause trouble. Um, well, it did cause a lot of trouble, and the doctor, my doctor, was fired, and um, so on. And, and uh, because I was still quite unwell, my mother wisely thought that she would send me to her mother just to be out of the way.
0: Mm.
1: So they had to find me a school in England very quickly. This was, and so I, I went to a school near my grandmother's house for a, a year and a bit. Mm. Um, in what age were you? I so, so I was eight.
0: Yeah.
1: We knew my grandmother very well. I mean, she had visited us in Ghana, and uh, I had been to her house when I was a child, but I didn't remember that. So it wasn't like being sent to a stranger. It was very much like being sent to your grandmother. <laughs> mm-hmm. And since I knew why it was happening, I didn't feel too bad about it. Um, and also, she was nearby, so if I did feel bad, I could, I could literally have run from school and but made my way to her house. Um, so, and then from then on, I was in English boarding schools. And when, when my father was out of prison, I started spending the vacations back home. Mm-hmm. But I was going to England all the time. So okay. So I was, I, on my 21st birthday, I calculated that I had spent about 10 years in Ghana and 10 years in England. Mm. And 50-50. 50-50. A little mm. bit in France and Germany and
0: Spain. So you are very much a product of two quite different cultures
1: yes yes, and and the thing about that is if you grow up in it that 's not how it strikes you
0: hmm.
1: what it, because the world is it's just one world, and you 're <laughs> yeah. living in it, yeah, yeah, and I saw my grandmother in Ghana, my English grandmother, and I saw my English grandmother in England, and uh, sometimes we went with my mother to England, and uh, we were all in England together. Um, and because we were lucky in having in both places large, um, loving families, cousins, uncles and aunts and so on, most of it was moving around in a family or two families. It, wasn't, uh, it didn't feel... I mean, we, I, I knew that, I suppose, from quite young, I knew that there were things that I made s- could make sense of that my cousins at either end might find difficult to understand. So I, I know how to deal with witchcraft. <laughs> and most of my English cousins don't um, what do you mean by the well i mean i don't, i witch- don't believe in witchcraft, but, I, but if somebody says so and somebody's a witch, I know what that means yeah, yeah, and yeah. I know that uh you can deal with witchcraft by going to somebody who will slaughter uh uh, sheep and deal with the witchcraft and so on. I know and the procedures. It, you I know, know the, the procedures. <gasps> it's not worth explaining that to somebody in England because they don't have to know. <laughs> they don't have to do it. No, no. Um,
0: and you know you, you, what you're saying is that the placebo is so strong, so it actually works to do these procedures to deal with it. Is that? Possible? Oh
1: yes. Well, anyway, because people are afraid, if you don't do them,
0: yeah. you have to do them.
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah. Otherwise, people yeah. will think you're crazy.
0: I actually have a Swedish friend who has been working as a doctor for Flying Doctors in yes. Africa, and he's saying exactly the same things. So you have to, you have to relate to witchcraft.
1: Yes, and so. you have to go. You have to understand how it's supposed to work. And yeah. uh, I mean, lots of people in my family just believe in it, so they yeah. don't. They don't have to. They don't have to instrumentalize it. They just. They They, they, they it, want yeah. to do it because they think it's. The have right you tried thing to, to
0: convince them about how it really is? No. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, no, I, I mean, any more than... You know, I, I have lots of unorthodox beliefs uh, in both places, and I, I don't know that it's worth... Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, I'm, it's not that uh, I would hide my view if somebody asked me, but my, my, my experience is that um, it's very hard to change people's mind about these things. Mm-hmm.
0: Why uh, is that, you think?
1: Well, I think the main reason is a, is a thing that it's not too hard to grasp, which is that... Um, You start from where you are, cognitively. You start Mm -hmm. with the picture you have. So if somebody comes with another picture, you don't immediately think, oh, yes, I'll throw that one away and I'll take that one. You ask about the new picture, how it looks from where you already are. Mm. And then the person with the new picture thinks certain things are obvious, but you have explanations for those things too. So the fact that they can explain something, aspirin, headaches, Mm. right... Uh, you, you can respond by saying, "Okay, yeah, we we have medicines too. Um, your medicine apparently works. Why should I give up belief in all the other stuff? This is just one thing. Mm. This one pill does this one thing. I can give you scores of herbs that will do scores of things. So why should I think of that as an argument for your system? Is it? Like? Yeah, I see. I will just see it through my system. This is a very important point for missionaries, right? <laughs> missionaries." Uh, are delighted when someone says, "Ah, you mean you're talking about?" And then they say the name of of the god, the high god. But if you say yes to that, they've essentially incorporated you. You haven't incorporated them, right? Mm. <laughs> they've 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 said they fitted you into their system. Now you start telling them things that they didn't know, like that the high god is very jealous and he doesn't like all the other gods. Um, <laughs> and maybe they, maybe they'll go along with that. Maybe they won't. But but. They're happy to agree with you that there is a high God, uh, but they're seeing it through uh, as as we inevitably do as human beings. We see things through the lenses of where we already are. So it takes a long time to make big changes. This is true with scientists when they're trying to shift yeah. from one
0: scientific paradigm to another. Yeah, right, yeah. it's exactly the same mm-hmm. thing, like uh, Einstein's yes, new paradigm. Yes. And Einstein never accepted quantum physics, for example. No,
1: he thought that there was something deeply wrong with, yeah. a, with mm-hmm. a radically probabilistic theory of the world. Yeah, And the earlier generations of physicists, before, almost none of them changed their minds in the face of uh, relativity and the quantum theory. It just young people grew up... Yeah who believed in it, and the old yeah. people who didn't believe it, it died. Mm. That's basically what happened in the history of physics. So the, the, so actually, from the point of view of the history of science, the interesting people are the people who do change their minds.
0: Mm. Yeah.
1: Not the people who come up with new theories and never really believe the old one. That's not so that's not so interesting. <laughs> it's, the, it's the people who fully embraced and understood and mastered the old system, mm. but come to see, ah, oh, yeah, I've read, I've read Einstein's paper on black body radiation, I can see that nature is radically different from the way I had imagined it was.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's very true. But um going back to your to your background, I mean, I I understand that these different cultures actually has shaped a lot of your view on identity. Yes. I guess. Wherever yes. or, or I can see that in your book and uh, and you argue along those lines and um uh, I mean, if you go to the world of today and the political situation in the world, by the way, you might like to know that the Swedish Liberal Party just got a new, the new leader of the party since a few months is a woman who was born in Burundi, I think, okay. uh, came to Sweden when she was 12. Uh, and um, she, yeah, she's the leader of the Liberal Party now. And unfortunately, the right-wing nationalistic party just yesterday in the opinion polls it seems to be very close to be the biggest party in Sweden. So that's how it develops in Sweden right now. Um, and identity seems to be more a more and more important issue in, in this kind of politics. How should we think about identity so that it is not used by nationalist populist forces do you think
1: you have to think about all identities including national Mm. identities i think in the way that i suggested earlier as needing to be shaped by the thought that we have to share the world with other people and the Mm. way our identities work has to work for as many people as possible yeah for sweden in the in the early 21st century it 's a kind of withdrawal into the idea of of a form of Swedishness that is radically held away from everybody else um, other people in the neighborhood uh, finns uh, norwegians danes but but other Europeans and then certainly you know, non non europeans and uh, Um, that isn't going to be very good for Sweden Mm. (laughs) Uh, because it's it's inconsistent with how Sweden inevitably is going to be Sweden is um, unless it becomes uh, something that even the the contemporary populists would fear and hate a country with um, um, uh, barbed wire borders and uh, the exclusion of um, people who mar- have married, Swedes who've married non-Swedish people. Mm. And so on. Uh, you know, you could go that way, but even these people don't want to go there. No,
0: uh, so if true. you're
1: not going there, then you have to think about where you actually are. Mm. So I think a sense of reality mm. is very important. One of the things about um, nationalist politics, on the left as well as on the right, is that it does tend to be to engage in fantasy, Hmm. It tends to imagine a, a way the country was or might be that just isn't possible. Uh, in the nineteenth century, Ernest Renan, the great French historian, conservative uh, nationalist, um, said that, um, that said that in any nation, uh, the story is made up. The, the story of any nation is made up both of things we remember and of things we choose to forget. <laughs> Um, well, that's polite because often we don't just choose to forget things. We, we misremember we miss them. We mm-hmm. remember things that didn't happen. And, and national stories often do that. And I just think that um, you've got to take care. Uh, you, you become victim to certain risks if you are unrealistic in that way. You start down a road which may look okay at the start. But if you follow it to its end, you, you start just with, you know, Germany for the Germans, and you end up with Auschwitz. Yeah. You, so you've really got to be careful, if you're, in, especially in a responsible position of leadership, you have got to be careful to see that the form of Swedishness that is uh, proposed by the popu- uh, by the populist party, by the right wing party, and I say this is true of the right wing. Uh, in in my country, in the United States, it's, it's true, the right-wing and Hungary, lots of places where mm. this is true. That form of um, identity isn't going to work in, in the world as it is. You can't keep uh, racial boundaries in the world as it is. More importantly, it won't work for many Swedes. Even if you win an election in, in the modern world, uh, that means you've got you know, 50% plus one,
0: mm.
1: uh, roughly, uh, on your side in the, in, in the voting. In all these countries where there are big populist movements, there are also strong, powerful, uh, cosmopolitan, li- liberal groups. And if you talk to the, those people in Hungary, they're really depressed.
0: Mm.
1: But they're not not Hungarian, mm. and they're not going to go away. Hungary is stuck with them.
0: Mm.
1: It's not going to convert them. So it it needs to make a hungry that fits both. Mm. Now that means that that demands something of the liberal cosmopolitans as well. It, it demands that they think about how they can uh, shape their policies to allow people who are much more comfortable in less cosmopolitan environments and who are much more comfortable uh, without uh, without without facing certain challenges. I, we can We can adjust the world uh, if we are willing to work together to uh, to allow that we can 't have stockholm cannot be a non cosmopolitan city no but there's, we can make it possible for people to want to live in the countryside in Sweden to live in, to live in the ways they want mm. to live. we don 't have to force them uh, to pretend to like the cosmopolitan city mm. uh, i don 't have to pretend to like living on a farm. Mm. But I do, I think, because they're my fellow citizens, speaking now in the voice of the Swede, mm. I, I do have to make the world safe for them too. And in return, I can ask them to make the world safe for me. Mm. That means that the world w- wouldn't be the world that I would choose all on my own, mm. or that me and my friends would choose. But that's what democracy is about. Democracy is just about accepting, and I, in my case, celebrating, that we're going to have to make uh, nations that uh, include people who are very unlike us Mm. and who nevertheless have, like us, one vote, and who matter because they're our fellow citizens, as we do because we're their fellow citizens, and so on. Mm. That's the thing that modern partisan, tribalistic politics doesn't accept. And while it's particularly virulent at the moment on the right, there's a, there's a left-wing version of this too. There's a, there's a, it's just that um, I think it's more natural to be cosmopolitan on the progressive side because it's more natural for a progressive person to be in favour of openness and exchange because part of what makes a conservative temperament is, is wanting to close yourself off from certain kinds of challenge and change. And as I say, that's not for me, but I know I have fellow citizens, and I speak in the voice of an American. Mm. Uh, I, I know I have fellow citizens who feel like that, and I want them to be safe in America. I don't want them to make America unsafe for me. Mm. I don't want them to make an America which, doesn't, which closes its borders. That won't work. It won't work for them either, because it'll destroy the American economy if we yeah, do that. Yeah. So I think the challenge is to is to avoid sort of zero-sum thinking. What happens in tribalism is... every bad thing that happens to the other side, you cheer. But that's not a democratic thought. In a democracy, we regret bad things happening to our fellow citizens... because the thought is, we all matter. Everybody, every Swede matters if you're a Swede. Every American matters if you're an American. So if you find yourself cheering for a bad thing... happening to one of your fellow citizens you should
0: tap yourself on the head and ask, haven't I been led astray? Mm. But I'm thinking, I, I get the impression, at least in Sweden, that sort of the society or the state, if you wish, sort of say to citizens that... Some of your, because every every person has multiple identities, obviously. But the state says some of your identities are more important than others. That's the feeling I get okay. sometimes. I'll give you a. It's of course an oversimplification, but imagine that you have a, a Somalian Muslim man who is also a, a devoted chess player, and if he if he comes goes to his um, community and says, "I'd like to start a." Somalian organization or association or a Muslim association, he will get money to help him to do that. But if he starts, wants to start a chess association, it's not so easy to get money. And in that sense, sort of the the municipality says that your identity as a Somalian or Muslim is more important than your identity as a chess player. Mm. And I'm thinking maybe that's not the case for him. him. Do you see what I mean? Yes. Good. So,
1: what I just said didn't address the question of how the state should okay. play in this mm. in this uh, park. Mm. Uh, and it's a very challenging problem. And one of the reasons it's challenging, which is something I talk about in the book, is that states are not just responding to identities. Mm-hmm. They're making them. They're shaping yeah. them.
0: Yeah. Uh, That's what I mean. Yeah. Yes.
1: And... And... The question is, on what basis? Mm. Uh, uh, yeah,
0: because you say identity is a lie—the lie that binds yes, mind. Right, right, and the state, the state could always say to anybody, um,
1: "We have experts who tell us that um, you have misinterpreted the Quran."
0: Mm.
1: Or we have experts who tell us that actually your ancestors came from Yemen to Somali a uh, hundred years ago, so you're not really Somali. I mean, that sort of thing. right? Mm. This is completely unhelpful because if I think I'm Somali, I don't care if my ancestors came from Yemen. Mm. And if I'm a Muslim, I don't care what you think the, the Quran yeah. says. I, I, I've got my own ideas about that. Yeah. Um, so rightly, states tend not to do that. They tend not to sell people those things, but they inevitably work with a kind of stereotyped picture of any identity that they work with. That's the only way a state can do anything. Mm. It, it, it can't be attentive to every detailed nuance no. of, the, of the million ways in which you might be a Somali in the North Atlantic world. No. So it picks some, and then, of course, those it turns to stone. It,
0: it, it fixes them. Yeah, and that, yeah. And, and, uh, now, um But should the states relate to identities at all? Well, right. So the natural thought
1: is if it if it's inevitably going to make a mess of it in the way that I just described, yeah. should it do anything at all? Yeah. And the answer, I think, is that um, it may be an even worse mess if it does nothing. Uh-huh. OK. Um, and there are a bunch of reasons why this is. One is simply that um, uh, people um, uh, care about <laughs> these things, these identities. And if you don't treat them at least with respect mm. the, and acting as a state, first of all, they won't feel that they're part of the political community if, if they don't feel that people like me are <laughs> respected by the state. Um, and second, if they're poor and immigrant and having a hard time, the aspect of identity that helps sustain them in those circumstances um, may require some assistance. Now, you could say uh, that... We could try try a different experiment, right? We could say, no, that's not what we're going to do. What we're going to do is we're going to say, when you come here, Mm. we're going to do our damnedest to make you Swedish. But notice what that requires. That requires a state notion of what it is to be Swedish, mm-hmm. um, and again, that's likely to be deeply controversial. Almost, almost anything you say uh, d- does it involve uh, does it involve Lutheranism? Uh, do, in other words, does it involve any kind of religious stuff? Uh, does it involve um, um, knowing a lot of stuff about Swedish history? Does it involve reading a lot of Swedish novels? Uh, does it involve uh, not doing certain things? Not um not having barbecues on the mm. lawn in the summer mm. i mean when you start trying to make a list uh of of those things uh it, what it will look like to real ordinary swedes is a kind of caricature of swedishness a kind of yeah. joke version of swedishness yeah. and they won't like it either no, <laughs> no. so I think you need to combine i mean the, the, in all these things often there's Aristotle you know suggested that in general the, the virtue is a is a mean between two vices um in all of these things i think there's a risk in 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 both directions and what you have to what why wise policy consists in both saying to people who come to settle in a country look we have our ways and if you 're coming to be one of us, there are some things that we should tell you about that you need to understand um, We are going to be sensible about it we 're going to think we 're going to tell you that about some of our ways. those are definitely not required because for example, they involve religion, and we understand that your religion matters enough to you that it 's not worth our while to try and disrupt it. but we can tell you that whatever your religion is um, We have ideas about when it's appropriate to bring religion into things and when it isn't, Mm. which may be different from where you came from. And even if you don't end up agreeing with them, we need to tell you about them. We need to tell you that we don't bring up God when we're talking about the National Health Service. Mm. you, you may want to bring up God. It's a free country. Yeah. You can try, but we can. But we warn you that uh, that's not what we've been doing and it probably won't work. <laughs> so there's a mixture of asking people to understand what's going on without saying you have to join it, but just you have to know about it. And some things you just say, look, we, we Swedes disagree with each other about lots of things. And maybe you'll find somebody who disagrees about this. But 99% of us think that... Uh, we're going to settle these things through democratic elections, and mm. we're going to, um, and we're going to have a very free press, and that means that we're going to have a press that will upset some of us, mm. and we accept that. We accept that the press will. I might be a devout Lutheran. It's, we're going to have a press that allows people to criticize Lutheranism. Uh, you, you, you can be a devout Muslim, but you have to understand here, you, we can't protect you from the pain of. Uh, hearing someone say something negative about Islam because we don't—that's not. Now again, um, so I think, it, and, and I, I don't know enough about Sweden to, to, tell, to, to know whether any of that would be helpful here. But I, and I do know some about some other European societies, which I think have gone too far in one direction or the other. So I think, I think, I think, Britain. Um, the, some of the problems of Islam in Britain derive from a complete failure of the integrationist Impulse mm-hmm. in Britain, Britain, you come here, get on with it <laughs> uh we, we don't have a theory of what it is to be British, uh, so keep the laws and go about your business well that's that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some of the French moves, on the other hand, that say. Yes, you, of course you can be French, but that means you can, you keep your religion away from school. Yeah, laïcité. Laïcité, which is a very peculiar way of understanding mm. separation of church and state. It's a very French way. I don't mm. mean it's bad, but it's but it's. I think often when French intellectuals talk about this, they they talk about it as if they think it's the only way you could do it.
0: No, mm. yeah, it's not, of and course. it's clearly not the mm. only
1: way. And there's, there's this is one of those many places where a bit of history is worth a lot. They tend not to remember that the modern confirmation of laïcité in France was the result of a battle between the French state and the Catholic Church, which the Catholic Church lost. So laïcité is, in an odd way, anti-religious. It's not like American uh, non-establishment and free exercise trying not to take sides. It's actively taking sides (laughs) against the view of the religious life.
0: I think they separated state and church nineteen oh five. Is that correct? Right, and but and as a result of, but I mean, long controversy. Yeah, and it involved doing things like
1: I mean, in nineteen oh five, lots and lots of uh, state schools in um, France had had, had um, nuns teaching in them, mm. right? Yeah, and yeah. they they said you can teach in these schools, but you can't dress as a nun. Mm. Well, if you are a nineteen oh five nun, <laughs> you are going to leave teaching because yeah. you are not going to, you know, you took a vow.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So,
1: this is important because uh, if they remembered more of this history, they would understand why Laïcité can feel anti-Muslim. Hmm. It, 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 it's sort of, in principle, it's not anti-Muslim. It's anti-religion. But but Muslim, Islam is a religion. So so of course it feels anti-Muslim if your if your religion is is, is Islam. Hmm. So anyway, I think the point is. Uh, there's something good about the French impulse. These people are here, they're French, they learn French, they go to the public schools, we support them. Uh, if if there's unemployment in their neighbourhoods, it matters just as much as the unemployment in other neighbourhoods. That's our official position. Practice not so great. But still, that's it's, the theory is that that's OK, but then kind of insisting for people for whom certain signs of religiosity are very central to their understanding of their religion that they must drop those signs. Mm. Well, I don't know that that's the most hopeful thing you can do. But that's a matter of, of, it's a sort of balancing judgment. I don't Mm. think that in these areas you can just create sharp lines. And the difficulty with our current very polarized politics is that people want to announce sharp principles and they don't want to Negotiate. Mm-hmm. They don't want to say, "Well, I can see that that, that that we have this principle," but on the other hand, it matters a lot to these people. Uh, so, so, my example of this is: is um, I'm in favour of laws requiring bicyclists, uh, motor bicyclists to wear helmets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm also in favour of an exception to those laws made for Sikhs, mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. whom putting a l- very large helmet on their on top of their turbans makes it more dangerous not less. <laughs> mm, okay. And they're not going to take the turbans off because it matters to them for their identity. But
0: what about wearing a knife? That's also a Sikh tradition. Good. And in, in school for example.
1: Well there th-
0: again this is one of those
1: cases where you got a balancing test on the whole and I don't know anything about the levels of violence in schools. I don't know uh, what what uh, symbolic knives that can't cut uh, would be acceptable to the Sikhs. I don't know enough mm. about the details, mm. but I would be looking for before I went immediately to the no knives mm. rule, mm. which is the, which is an easy rule for everybody else, but hard for the Sikhs. Mm. Yeah. I would see is there is there an easier is there a rule that's easier for the Sikhs? Can, can we allow them to do what, what happens now in in airports? We don't, you, you can't have proper knives, but you can have plastic knives that can't do much damage. Mm. Uh, maybe they should be allowed symbolic knives of some sort or other, mm. and. You're, you're asking, you're making a compromise. So you can perfectly reasonably ask them to make a compromise. They, if they start insisting on an absolute principle, they'll meet your absolute principle yeah, and they'll yeah. lose. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. so what you've got to do is to be a okay. little bit... But but all of this depends upon a kind of democratic goodwill which partisanship, political partisanship, undermines. So I'm, I, I, I don't know really seriously don't know enough about Sweden to know where you are on this. But in, no, but it, it, in re- my country, we are in a disastrous situation right now. There is the, mm. the, the goodwill that is needed to accommodate the fact that people feel strongly in opposite directions mm. is just not there.
0: Mm. Well, in Sweden, there are other debates right now. For example, religious schools. Uh, a lot of people want to take that away completely and say that children should have a a secular school system and religious teaching has to be on their free time outside of schools. What do you think about that idea? In general, um,
1: I I would, I don't, I mean, again, I would favor a well-meaning democratic (laughs) negotiation. I Mm. would ask, what is it that you want in your religious schools? Mm. Um, that we that we can't let you have in the lives of your children without them mm. and if we can do some of that setting aside a day of the week when uh, the appropriate day for the appropriate faiths uh, when you can do, mm. you can have in a, an imam or a rabbi or, mm. or a, a catholic priest um, which is what I went to an, an Anglican school in England mm-hmm. but, but the, the rabbi came on Fridays and and so on, and uh, I don't. We I, we didn't know much about what he did because the Jewish kids went off with the rabbi. But but um, uh, so it, it wasn't very good. I think we could have done a better job of the rest of us learning more about Judaism since we had a rabbi. Uh, but <laughs> never mind. Mm-hmm. But uh, but we. So you can you can make compromises. Yep. Um, uh, and then, but what and why? Well, because there's an important democratic value here which is educating our children together. Hmm. And you don't want to drive people out of the public schools. This is one of the, back to the laïcité issue. Yeah. Why are there Catholic schools in France? Because the, some Catholics felt, okay, you've got laïcité in the public schools. We cannot send our children mm. to the public schools. No. This is not good. <laughs> Better to have a public school system that's, that's got everybody in it, everybody who's in the society. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a problem in the United States. Uh, we've, people have fled the public schools, anybody who can afford to. Mm. Well, there's two things. Um, a lot of people have fled the public schools and just gone into private schools. Other people have fled the neighborhoods where the public schools are bad mm. into neighborhoods where the housing is expensive, in yeah. part because the taxes are high because they're paying for the local schools. <laughs> And so the the dream of a public school in which people of all classes and races and religions mm. are together because they're in the city together or they're in the town together and their children should be together. They should know one another, mm. which is, I think, the ideal, is completely disappearing mm. in many places. So I would hope that you didn't end up with a religious version of the class version mm. of, of the class thing that we've got in the United States mm-hmm. right now, uh, Christian schools in the United States are basically uh, uh, racial. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're there to to maintain racial distance, really, or class dis- distance. And honestly, mm-hmm. uh, if they were honest, I mean, I, there are a few exceptions, and, and the Catholics are better than the Protestants. But uh, mm. speaking as an ex-Protestant, but uh, <laughs> but the you're um, an ex-Protestant. Meaning. Yes. Meaning. meaning I was raised in in I was raised as a Protestant I went to Protestant schools I and now you trained, are and now I'm an, an atheist mm. uh, Secular humanist, maybe Um... I would say that, except that I've noticed what some of the other secular are like, and they seem more
0: anti-religious than I am. Aha, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, Anthony, actually, we are going to be on stage in 10 minutes, okay, so, so we, we have to stop here. But it was wonderful to have you on this podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. Nice to talk to you.